two, one, and go. Hello, everyone. I would like to welcome you to this discussion, the Upskillers, future-proving jobs and skill sets in the era of data, AI, and automation. My name is Janet Pao, and I'm the Hong Kong director of the Economist Corporate Network, which is the, the group within the Economist group that focuses on serving C-suite and senior executives of multinational businesses in Asia and here in Hong Kong. I am very honored to be joined by four esteemed panelists today. Oliver Tonby, Chairman of Asia of McKinsey and Company. Jiadi Yu, Principal Investment Officer of the International Finance Corporation. John Fall, Co-Founder of GetLinks Group. And Erwin Anand, Managing Director, India and APAC of Udemy. You will find the full biographies of all our panelists on the screen under this media player. So I wanted to start by talking about decent work and economic growth, which is the eighth sustainable development goal developed by the United Nations. During the session, we will be exploring the challenges and also opportunities uh, to achieve this SDG in an increasingly digital world and perhaps a less globalized world and certainly a post-pandemic world. Many of the Asian economies right now have been a huge beneficiary of economic integration over the last two decades. However, in the past few years, we have really seen a gradual erosion of some of the region's economic advantages, especially those of China and other developing economies. Labor costs are rising, trade tensions and also risk perceptions are also increasing, which have led companies to consider reshoring or nearshoring supply chains. The rising prevalence of AI and automation mean that many routine jobs and tasks can be done by a mix of machines, algorithms, and humans, and in many cases, many fewer humans. And COVID-19 has further accelerated the process of companies investing in digital capabilities and also the diversion of some of the manufacturing processes and jobs from being concentrated in certain low-cost economies in Asia. So today, uh, what we want to talk about is the objective of the panel is to discuss how to future-proof jobs in Asia and also um, the skill sets in the digital era. What we want to do is to talk about how Asia can benefit and also look to benefit from this demographic dividend in the future by looking at a new formula or retooling for the new era. So I wanted to invite all of you to download uh, some of the reports we have here on the screen by McKinsey, uh, and they can be downloaded on this page. So now I wanted to start with some of the questions uh, that we're looking to address during this discussion. So now I was talking about some of the routine tasks that can be codified by algorithms, and they are at risk of being automated away. And these can be blue collar jobs or white collar jobs in manufacturing or services. So I wanna ask the panelists to start by talking a little bit about what sectors are the most vulnerable in Asia. So maybe John, I can ask you to start. Sure. Um, thanks for having me here. It's, a, it's an honor already. 
Um, and, and with GetLinks, I think I'm a relevant candidate to talk about this because um, with our platform, we've got more than 5 million digital talents or digital white colors, as we mentioned, uh, software engineers, digital marketers, designers who, who, are, who are making an income. Uh, and uh, we've, 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 we've empowered more than $1.2 billion of revenue and income to this talent for the past few years. So, so yeah, we've seen a lot of, of this. And um, to be honest, after working in tech industry for the past 10 years, uh, after uh, overseeing that for three continents uh, and interviewing uh, you know, a lot of corporate managers, scientists and, and CXOs for the, my book, The Adaptive Economy, it become very clear that um, we are not looking at entering a negative future in terms of jobs and employment. But what we're looking at is a major shift in terms of the set of skill sets that will be needed in each job um, and the type of jobs that will be hiring for the next 10 years. So a lot of people are scared about automation. A lot of people are, are, are thinking, oh, that's the end of the employment. We're talking about the, the last era of employment, but actually uh, it could be not true. And I will share you more in the next couple of questions as well, but uh, whether it's the care economy whether it's the tech economy, tech industry, or the sustainability or ESG sector, uh, there's massive needs of hiring, right? And this is why companies like GetLinks have been growing quite tremendously for the past uh, few years. Um, what, what is needed now is really a reskilling revolution to be able to have these people uh, to be employed by these uh, new companies that are simply using computers. Um, so I think it's a really question. Uh, in World Economic Forum, uh, we were looking with uh, Mark Benioff, uh, talking about 1 billion uh, reskilling people by 2030, right? So, so it's, uh, it is really a lot of people. It's a big challenge. Uh, and in Asia specifically, uh, it's, there's a lot to talk. So that's why I'm personally extremely happy to be uh, here and share some of the insights. Great, thank you, John. Um, Oliver, I would like to go to you next. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what is uh, what are the kinds of jobs or work that is vulnerable to uh, this new technology disruption era? I'm delighted to uh, join it. Let, let me first start by saying I, I completely agree with uh, what John said, just said. Um, We've looked at this over a number of years. What is the impact of automation, for example, on jobs? More recently, we just launched a report on jobs post-COVID. Um, first point is this technology revolution is going to create more jobs than it destroys. We've looked at globally, you're talking about order of magnitude, 800 million jobs being created. Uh, but you're also looking at 600 million jobs being in danger of being aut automated away, if you will. Uh, but net, there are more jobs being created than are being destroyed. Uh, I think it's important to keep that in mind. Second point is, particularly in Asia, uh, we are in a better spot uh, because we have underlying growth. Um, there's more growth in Asia than there are in other parts of the world. Um, Post-COVID, you know, we hope to return to seeing rates of five, six, seven percent in India and Southeast Asia and China and what have you. I think many other parts of the world would die for those kind of growth rates. Those kind of growth rates means a need for that is a growing consumption, uh, a growing consumer demand that needs more jobs. Uh, but 
as uh, you alluded to, there's going to be, these are different jobs, more jobs, but different jobs. So there's a, a shift and, and we've seen this, we see it very clearly in the numbers. We see that uh, sectors such as agriculture, such as manufacturing, warehousing, jobs in office supplies, jobs in, uh, in mechanical insulation, repair, these are going to be, there's gonna be less demand for those kind of jobs. And there's gonna be more demand for jobs in healthcare, in creative uh, professions, STEM uh, professions, that's uh, science, technology, engineering professions, and business and legal, these are growing disproportionately more. So there's some jobs are going up, some jobs are going down. That is true globally. Um, it is true in Asia, but in Asia, the effects uh, are a little bit different because almost all sectors are actually going to grow with the exception of, uh, of agriculture and, uh, and a couple of other uh, sectors. Let me, let me pause there for now and we can continue more uh, later on. Great. Um, I want to ask a bit about the geographic distribution. So obviously when we're talking about Asia, uh, Asia is not monolithic. There are developed economies and there are developing economies and their economic structure and employment structures are quite different. So in terms of digital preparedness right now, um, where in Asia uh, do you see some of the major gaps? Jadi, maybe I'll go to you for that. Thanks. Uh, actually, digital divide has long been a challenge Asia is facing. Uh, COVID pandemic only bring this challenge front and center. Asia has a 4.6 billion population, uh, account for 60% of the world population. However, more than 2 billion population has no internet connection at all. In South Asia alone, uh, almost 207 million women has no mobile. If we look at the uh, uh, internet penetration in ASEAN region, uh, only three countries have more than 80% penetration rate, which are Singapore, Brunei, and Malaysia. Uh, if we look at Indonesia, the largest uh, uh, country in ASEAN, uh, with 260 million population, only 150 million has uh, an internet connection. Um, and uh, both Vietnam and Myanmar uh, has only made a certain uh, penetration rate. Even for online users, uh, the economic opportunity is not evenly uh, distributed. Uh, take ASEAN uh, as an example uh, uh, again. Uh, there's only, uh, for, for seven largest uh, cities in this region, uh, which uh, come for over 50% of the digital economy, with only 15% of our population. And if we look at the fixed broadband subscription rate, uh, Central Asia stands at 27% versus only 2% in South Asia. There's another factor which exacerbates uh, this uh, digital divide, which is the high share of informal economy in the region. So in Asia, developing economies, the informal economy accounts for, uh, on average, 71.4% uh, versus 21.7% uh, in uh, advanced economy. So, and in India, the informal economy account as high as 90%. So 
So for for workers working in those informal economy, they mainly stuck with a low productivity, low pay, uh, and uh, temporary jobs has very limited access to technology and very little opportunity for the on-job training. So uh, this uh, informal, this economic inequality will uh, it will entrench uh, the digital divide uh, in Asia. Yeah, I think you really make a good point. And uh, I think a lot of us have seen that, especially during the pandemic, when this digital divide is really front and center, when everybody has to rapidly move to online learning, uh, working from home, we realize that a big problem is that a lot of people, um, especially in developing economies and even within countries, uh, there are a lot of people who are not able to do that because of some basic issues with infrastructure, uh, you know, Wi-Fi connectivity, uh, and issues that I think a, a lot of those of us who lived in, live in cities or developed economies take for granted. But across Asia, uh, because there's so much variability, sometimes basic uh, infrastructure is a problem. And the informal economy certainly is a problem where uh, there's not even visibility into who is uh, being disadvantaged. So I wanted to ask uh, a little bit more about uh, the differences between the different kinds of economy. Um, John, I think I uh, wanted to come to you on that. Uh, can you share some of your insights about uh, you know, over the next few, uh, number of years, what kind of differences do you see uh, between the different kinds of economies in terms of preparedness for the digital era? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and to be honest, it's very fun uh, to anticipate uh, where jobs will be because actually it's very close to anticipating which industry will be booming or which or speculating uh, on the stock market, right? <laughs> which company to invest in. It's very, very close. And, and actually, you know, if you see, for example, Tesla is performing very well uh, for last year. So you can imagine the solar uh, energy uh, industry is going to boom and it's already the case in China. Uh, so you can actually expect this, uh, this, uh, this industry to explode and hence the need of maintenance worker for this uh, clean tech industry gonna be needed, right? Uh, so that's just a very small example on how uh, anticipating jobs creation is also related to uh, anticipating which industry are booming and which companies are probably going to grow. To give you some numbers, um, there's a very interesting GRC report um, about the job creation driven by technology progress. Um, and I can, I can quickly share you some of, the, some of the data here. So obviously IT, science and engineering uh, for the for twenty for two thousand to two thousand sixteen had a massive growth of thirty eight percent in Asia, uh, and for twenty sixteen to twenty thirty we're looking at sixteen percent growth. So that will be the highest sector of job creation. But this is no surprises, um, right? I think what is very interesting to share is on the other side the biggest de uh, decrease of uh, of skilled labor is under handicraft printing walkers, stationary plant, machine operator, and uh, metal machinery workers. So we have seen a decrease of 2000, from 2000 to 2016 of 17%, and from 2016 to 2030, uh, we'll see a decrease of 2%. In the meantime, uh, I think as Oliver mentioned, uh, healthcare, 
um, cleaners, social workers are actually expected to grow 12 percent uh, from 2016 to 2030. So that's one of the major uh, angles alongside with uh, the other high skill labor, like such as doctors, teachers, lawyers, administrators. However, uh, the important thing to note is this is going very, very nicely with another uh, report uh, from GSC, which is talking about the penetration on the use of the computers at work. And so you can see that even uh, if doctors, for example, will not need to become scientists to realize their daily job, they will use more and more computers and their work process will be, will be more and more digitalized. And hence the need for these what we call white colors to become digital white colors. And I think that's a, that's a common pattern that we're going to see for the next decade to come across all the industries. Every company is going to become a tech company in a sense that every white collar going to become a digital white collar using more software to increase their productivity. So yeah, I will stop there, but uh, this is a very interesting topic and uh, I hope uh, I can see everyone is a digital white collar already here because we're all using Zoom today to do this conference. That's right. Thank you. Um, so we've started with some of the very interesting insights on the kinds of uh, work and also job categories with challenges and also future potential. We talked a little bit about geographies. I wanted to come next to a very particular group of people that uh, for Asia is very important, which are the young people, young demographics. Uh, at The Economist, we've done recently uh, an article talking about how uh, one-sixth of young people worldwide have lost their jobs in the second quarter of 2020. And so, you know, it was really focused on uh, looking at the statistics in the COVID era, but this has been going on uh, in terms of young people needing to think about the jobs of the future. This has been going on for a number of years already, and a lot of the governments around Asia uh, see this as a very, very important policy area to tackle. So I wanted to go to Irwin next. Um, in terms of creating jobs, especially for the next generation, um, how can we foster this job creation that can withstand um, this kind of crises that are unforeseen like COVID? And when we talk about future proofing jobs, um, you know, what, what part of it is, is about boosting digital skills and what part of it is kind of non-digital skills? So can you talk both uh, in terms of future-proofing and also, you know, what's digital versus not digital in terms of preparing our younger generation for the future? Uh, let's, uh, let's go back to pre-COVID times and, and let's take back, back our memory to Jan 2020. This was before the pandemic hit us. Uh, we were in an era which we right now call as the fourth industrial revolution and that era continues. Uh, and this era is characterized by a few key themes. One of them is fast pace of change uh, that we need to continuously adapt. This era is also uh, characterized by heightened globalization. Our uh, lives are connected and impacted by disruptions, innovations elsewhere in the world. We're talking about Tesla by sitting here in Asia. Uh, digital and tech are impacting our way of life. Everything that we do now is enabled by internet and computers, as some of the other panelists have already talked about. And then come the pandemic in March 2020, it brought into the forefront all of these themes of fourth industrial revolution. 
So you look at how it drove immediate change. Many lost jobs in our part of the world, as you alluded to. Most had to adjust to work from home rather than working from an office. Globalization, the virus spread all over the world, led to lockdowns and mobility restrictions all over the world. And businesses and jobs would continue to thrive and survive, but the ones which were firmly anchored on digital, either in terms of their access to consumers or in terms of their internal systems and processes, and the rest are like figuring out how to stay relevant and survive. So the pandemic crisis, hence, is accelerating the many transformations that were already underway. And, and in that context, when we talk about future-proofing jobs, uh, isn't it all about relevance of our skills? Skills which we need to compete are changing so fast now, and there's no way for us to stay relevant or thrive without continuous learning. Uh, you guys have been talking about World Economic Forum. Uh, they've been predicting that more than half of the working population needs to be reskilled in the near future. So that's a reality. And this not only is a reality from an employment perspective, this also requires a change in mindset from all of us, from all of us as individual working professionals. Many people feel that once they receive a college degree, they've done what it takes to find a job and keep a job. The reality is that to progress in any career, people need to continuously learn. They need to adapt to never-ending shifts in job requirements, new emerging skills. Uh, this is the skills economy. And learning is the new currency uh, to uh, survive and thrive in this economy. Uh, we believe uh, within Udemy that the most important skill for everyone today is the ability to learn, to adapt, to change. And the urgency to fully embed lifelong learning in our everyday lives is higher now than ever before. And when you talk about what kind of skills, uh, it's all kinds of skills. So of course, digital skills, since they change very fast, uh, they have now become essential mainstream in each and every profession. But beyond that, when the pandemic surge happened, we saw a huge surge in learning on Udemy, roughly four to five times surge across all our geographies in the world. Uh, we saw an increase in breadth of courses being taken on the platform, from sales, marketing, finance, operations, soft skills, name a skill, and there is a need for scaling people on it. Uh, and that's where Udemy comes in, where uh, companies, individuals, government can find practical skill-based training to be effective at work and solve a problem at hand or unplug yourself from, from a project or get into a new job. More skills get added, added on a monthly basis on that platform. Skills are changing fast, so even as a platform like us, we need to adapt and ensure that latest and greatest skills are in top because new skills emerge every month, uh, uh, which are needed by the workforce of today. Yeah, very true. Yeah, I think this concept I of lifelong learning, uh, you know, has also uh, become a, much of a focus these few years and very, very relevant now. And, uh, you know, not just for people who have been out of school for a long time, but even for the younger generation who I think up to now also think, well, you know, I get through the education system. Maybe I have some years of tertiary education system or postgraduate training, and then I get into a job. Uh, I think what is very clear now is that, uh, you know, many of the jobs of the future don't even exist. And even people studying in universities now in certain disciplines, uh, their, their lifetime will be uh, full of transitions in terms of their careers and the kinds of skills they need. Um, I wanted to turn to Oliver and then Jiali uh, to talk a little bit uh, more about the, the, this area of skills and, you know, what kinds of 
future proofing needs to be done you know, on the digital skills side and also on the non-digital skills side. Maybe Oliver first. Thank you, Janet. And I, 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 um, it's an excellent question. I wanted to follow up uh, from Urban here. So, you, uh, I think you said earlier on, uh, uh, Janet, that young folks are losing uh, jobs at a higher pace. Uh, we also see women uh, losing more jobs during COVID, higher likelihood of losing jobs uh, than men during COVID. So I think there, there is a problem here. Uh, we also have looked at what is the likelihood for different segments to have to change occupation over the next years up until 2030. And for the younger segments, they have a four times increased likelihood of having to change an occupation than they did before COVID. So COVID is an accelerator, but it's also a differentiator. Now, there is a, a small part in here that is good news, which is that many of the new jobs are higher paying jobs. So we've, we've bucketed into high, medium and low paying jobs. And we look, for example, in India that the higher paying jobs are growing at 5%, whereas the lower paying jobs are declining at 6%. So part of the good news is that hopefully there are more higher paying jobs that are, that are coming. Those jobs, however, require a different skill set uh, to Urban's uh, point. Uh, we've looked at five different types of skills, uh, different professions and bucketed. We've looked at the need for technological, including digital skills, social and emotional skills, higher cognitive skills, basic cognitive skills, and physical and manual skills. And for the higher paying jobs, the ones in the, in the top 30% uh, of the jobs, there's higher need for technological, for digital skills, there's higher need for social and emotional skills as well. Let's not forget that. It's not only digital and technology, but, but that. So I think it's an imperative on all, on, on education of all the respective students to continue learning some of these technological skills, but also remember some of the social skills, how to communicate, how to work in teams and so forth. So, so I think those are the skills that the students and the education system needs uh, to focus in on. Uh, these are some of the things that, you know, the, uh, the governments and the employers need to allow their people to, uh, to build. Daddy? I think for the, uh, yeah, uh, for the jobs that are primarily lost to the uh, COVID pandemic, uh, I think a part or even most of the job will get recovered once the economy uh, reopen. Um, however, some jobs actually permanent, permanently lost to automation. Uh, for example, uh, Foxconn Group, uh, which is the, the world's largest uh, electronic assembler, uh, they introduced the, the, the auto automatic system in China and it has cut down 30% of their workforce. Uh, another uh, example is Ant Financial, a fintech firm uh, affiliated to Alibaba. Uh, they actually uh, use their big data to uh, process their the, uh, you know millions of uh, loan applications, and without uh, without employing uh, thousands of uh, loan officers or uh, lawyers. Uh, so so. Uh, the automation uh, does impose uh, uh, a threat to the job. But on the other hand, uh, uh, innovation also creates a, a new market uh, 
uh, new products, new tasks. I think the question here is that uh, for the young people uh, who were displaced uh, by automation, whether they can acquire uh, the necessary skills required by the, uh, the, the new jobs. I think that's the, that's the key. Uh, in China, we have seen that the, uh, a very uh, effective approach is the uh, close collaboration between industry and the vocational training. Uh, for example, two large IT firms, the, uh, um, the uh, Lenovo and uh, NewSoft, uh, so they work closely with uh, uh, tertiary education institutions uh, to uh, develop the, uh, the high-tech uh, high skills. And uh, they use the practice-based uh, curriculum and uh, also, uh, also send their engineer as part-time teachers uh, so to fully prepare those uh, students to hit the ground uh, running. Uh, so uh, so um, I think the, the, I would think that the, the, the future of the job is pretty much it will be shaped by the uh, battle between the uh, automation and the uh, innovation. Um, and I also agree with uh, Oliver's uh, point that uh, um, uh, I think the education institution should very much uh, um, emphasize on developing the soft skills, what we call high-level uh, cognitive uh, skills. Uh, the, uh, I think the, uh, the tertiary institution should have passed kind of the, uh, uh, guarantee a minimum or threshold of the, uh, uh, the cognitive skills, you know, such as uh, critical thinking, problem solving, and uh, uh, adaptability. So those are uh, transferable uh, skills uh, could be uh, a good inoculation against the, uh, the uh, uncertain job market. Yeah, thanks, Javi. I wanted to touch on a point that you mentioned uh, at the beginning of your comments, and then we'll get into uh, hopefully a time of talking about solutions. Um, who can do what to help future proof jobs? But that comment uh, that you were mentioning, Jadi, was about the jobs that may be permanently lost to automation. So I think one big concern, and really the elephant in the room that we have, is that some of the workers that are displaced by uh, automation and AI may have a fundamental problem of employability. So maybe some of the low-skilled worker, maybe some of the aging workforce who risk being uh, quote-unquote left behind and really experiencing downward mobility uh, because of their inability to engage and upgrade their skills and to transition to other decent uh, jobs. Where do you think this is a challenge in terms of particular occupations and geographies. I wanted to ask Oliver to comment and maybe then Erwin, you can comment on this. I think you raise, you raise a very important point. I think we always need to remember that, you know, it's it's quite easy sometimes to talk at these things at the high level, at the country level, at the global level, and how many jobs are needed and how many will disappear. But we need to remember that, you know, at the heart for every job that can disappear, for every job that is, is changed in a significant way, there's an individual that is affected. And it's kind of, it's deeply personal and it's deeply uncomfortable. So I know we spent a lot of time talking about how can governments, how can countries smoothen this transition? And, and yes, many things that governments can do to smoothen that transition. 
you know, they can encourage lifelong learning. They can provide transition support. They can build digital infrastructure to make it easier for people to participate. So many things they can do, but at the heart of this is an individual, and that is often not a smooth transition for the individual. Um, so, so I think some of the areas to look out for are in what we talked about at the start of, the, of this conversation, which is in some of those manual labor type of, of professions, in manufacturing, in warehousing, uh, in uh, the um, in transportation, but uh, more, more into the urban transportation, uh, where you can see things being automated and what have you. So those are some of the areas to look out for. Uh, and I think that the, the, the solution at the, at the country level or the corporates is how do you help these individuals continue their learning journey throughout their, throughout their lives? And I think the later we start with it, the more problematic and the more, frankly, can feel traumatic uh, it will be. Erwin, sure. would you like to weigh in? Where, yeah, taking on from where Olivier has left, uh, even I would want to kind of talk about unemployability a little upstream. So, so when I say upstream, uh, let's talk about APAC. APAC is a mix of high income and mid to low income countries. The population mass resides in middle low income countries. Uh, and these countries have a very young population. As an example, my home country, India, our population median age is about 28 years. This means that countries like India have a demographic dividend on our side, but the issue is that there are too many people needing a job and much fewer job opportunities, leading to a higher level of unemployment. Uh, to add to that, unfortunately, uh, the education system in our countries does not equip students with the skills they need to, to bag a job. Uh, we did a recent survey in India, 80% plus respondents came back and said that their education did not equip them with skills that are needed to be relevant at work. Uh, another survey which got uh, released last year, it talked about 80% of engineering students graduating from colleges uh, being unemployable. So whatever they learned in a college or an institution is not really relevant at work. So from our vantage point, the education systems and curricula need to improve supplemented with skill-based boot camps. Uh, 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 JD talked about tertiary skill-building initiatives uh, to take students from colleges to jobs. And once people are far fortunate enough to bag a job, they realize that they need to continuously reskill to retain the job, especially as we age. And, and this is a reality across all industries, specifically those which are being disrupted by digital transformation. Automation, AI will definitely take away certain jobs, but will also create new jobs. It's up to us eventually as learners as well, as companies, as governments, to continue to invest in ourselves to make us relevant. Uh, also, I want to emphasize, uh, and I think this is something we've seen in uh, when we work with companies uh, who invest in their people. We also have a corporate learning platform called Udemy for Business. We've seen that companies uh, are looking at continuously reskilling existing workforces rather than firing those whose skills are redundant and, and hiring afresh. There are some companies which do that whenever they feel a shortage of skills and they find their existing workforce to be redundant, they just fire and then hire. We've seen that culture and engagement in companies where people are continuously reskilled 
from uh, skills which are becoming irrelevant to those become which are becoming re more relevant they have a much better in employee culture people are uh, more productive uh, it is eventually less expensive and drives higher employee engagement so that's another thing which i would want to advocate as a leader Great, thank you. Um, I think what is undoubtedly true is that when we talk about reskilling and upskilling and future-proofing and also helping those uh, that might risk being left behind, this will really require efforts from multiple sectors. It is not that uh, education institutions alone can deal with a problem or just companies or just government with policies, but it really requires multi-sector efforts. Um, I wanted to move into a time of discussion of uh, what your thoughts are in terms of the areas in which public versus private sector and other institutions can best provide support. And you know, I think we have private sector represented here, public sector, uh, international organization represented here. So I wanted to give each of you a time to maybe talk a little bit about the, the solution set. So let's let's uh, figure out what would be the high potential things that uh, you know the different groups in society can do in order to future-proof jobs and generate more employment in the new digital era. So maybe I'll start with you, John. Thank you, I was burning for this question. <laughs> um, okay. Give me a bit of time here because there is a lot to say, but I'll start with this. In 2020 alone, um, with COVID, we've got 130 million people to lose their job. But actually, we, we always talk about number of jobs, the absolute number of jobs. And yes, this is important, but it's also about the income value of each of these jobs and the PLC value of the job in the market, right? That's what really makes the difference. Someone who is making a $100 per month income and someone who is making a $10,000 per month income, this is really what we're talking about here in terms of technology for changes and, and inclusion and economic empowerment, right? So that's very, the, the very important thing is this one, I believe. And on average, digital white collars have proven to make on average four times the median salary of their country in Southeast Asia. If you want more details on that, you can look at Getlink's quarterly salary report uh, for more data. On the other side, internet on the left and COVID on the right has made something very special happen quicker than we could expect. In 2020, we have seen some people with no diploma actually making 10 to 20,000 US dollars a month for example, in the field of data science, self-taught data science or AI or, or full-stack development as being freelancers. While in the same time, we have some of my friends who are master degree, very strong graduate from business school who actually remained unemployed. And it's been a it's been few, few months now. So in terms of getting a job, it's really the proof that traditional education has been broken for years, but today is the realization of it. Because digital employability is actually about the set of skill sets, not a diploma. And that's a massive shift in the process of hiring. Now to top up a little bit on what Oliver and Jedi and, and uh, Irwin mentioned, I strongly believe the one soft skill is actually making the difference. And this soft skill is adaptability. 
Continuous self-learning, lifelong personalized short-term training is becoming a major factor of the income you are making today. Your adaptability matters more than anything else. Your capability of staying relevant for the market, because that's what's going to differ from someone making $100 per month of $10,000 per month. Through the Coursera, through Udemy platform, you can actually make that difference by yourself through self-learning, right? So this is why uh, as an angel investor in HR Tech, I recently actually invested in a digital employability education company called Adaptivity. This company is really amazing. They are doing AI career recommendation for personalized learning in a chatbot. Uh, and this company is actually looking to open in three markets by the end of the year, including Singapore. And I think we're going to start to see a lot more of these companies. This is a new category that we are seeing that is nascing and uh, I call this the digital employability market. Right? It's in the middle of education and recruitment. Right? And that's, that's a new market, which I think is going to grow exponentially. On the other side, most of the platform, the, most of the hiring platform we know today, job boards, marketplaces, headhunters uh, for candidates are actually not designed for this new form of employability, such as this AI freelancer who is making $20,000 a month. Right? Changing employer every week uh, is in that example what enabled that uh, talent to make that much money, consulting different companies through freelancing on AI and data science. And this is a massive gap. So this is why uh, with GetLinks as one of the solutions in the market, and I'm sure there's many that are going to follow GetLinks, uh, we are looking to provide this solution in Southeast Asia market and become the leading employability gateway for digital white collar by offering them an income, not only on a full-time basis, but actually on a part-time basis, freelance basis, day-to-day -day basis, and remote basis. And I think, I think this is very exciting because this is really where you can really make the difference. Uh, and that's through what we call digital employability. Thanks, John. Uh, I think you touch on a, a, an interesting future pattern that we'll see in terms of people's employment, which is uh, basically the, the younger generation uh, or the current generation of workers over the last few decades may be going through just many different types of uh, positions and uh, those require different set of skills, some of which we might not even know. Uh, and it is quite important for us to just really think out of the box a little bit in terms of how to maintain and also transition them in terms of these different kinds of employment. Um, Oliver, I wanted to ask you specifically about one of the uh, measures that you mentioned in one of the papers on the future of work. And this is what you call the micro-credential system. Um, can you talk a little bit about what this means and how this can be useful in terms of future-proofing jobs? So, so before I go there, can I just, I think very well spoken by, uh, by Joanne. Um, I, I actually think if, if the goal here is lifelong learning, and I do think it is, I think it is lifelong learning, uh, but in a real sense, where you continuously add new skills, small skills, micro skills, uh, and build up your kind of your experience base over time. If that is the goal, then I think we should be talking about what do companies, what do governments, what do academia, what do the individuals need to do in that world? And I would just say, you know, at the high level, number one, companies actually need, and they're 
probably possibly the most important part of this outside the individual themselves. So the companies, they need to be providing time and opportunity for their employees to learn new skills. And it, it, should, it needs probably to be just in time for the task at hand, right? That could be, I need to start learning something about machine learning and how it actually is useful for the job that I'm doing day to day, as one example. But it's this set of skills at particular level and the companies need to be encouraging and allowing your employees to have time to do that. It doesn't need to take a lot of time. The, 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 the academia, the universities, I think, you know, they obviously need to go even more upstream and, and into the younger generations teaching the right skills, but also through the course of an individual's lifetime, they need to provide modular courses, online or real, but, but the, the, they need to have top-up programs, if I'm allowed to call it that. The government needs to be providing potentially transition support, some incentive, some help to companies or even individuals so they can continuously upgrade their skills. And then finally, coming back to what Diane said, and I love his, his statement about perhaps the most important skill is that the one of adaptability. I would say that the most important person unit in all of this is the individual themselves and their desire to stay ahead, if I'm allowed to call it that, stay fresh, stay relevant. And, and I think that's where you know, what, what each individual needs to have is like kind of build up their own CV, their own kind of curriculum of these are the skills that I want to build and make sure that they're actually purposely evolving that over time and building it over time. Let me pause there. Great. Um, can I then go to Javi and Erwin to make uh, some comments on what uh, governments or NGOs, international institutions, um, education institutions can do to help future group? Um, I can uh, uh, talk about the, the government perspective. Uh, I think the uh, government uh, um, uh, broadly have uh, four categories um, uh, tasks to do. First is to invest in uh, human capital, uh, including the you know the uh, uh, the pre um, um, uh, the pre education uh, space. Um, you know, started the, the kindergarten training, which actually uh, helped to set the foundation of the uh, higher cognitive skills, and also uh, uh, provide training uh, to increase the digital uh, literature and the skills. Uh, the, the second task is to, um, uh, to enhance the digital connectivity and the digital uh, inclusion uh, by building up both digital infrastructure um, such as you know telecom infrastructure, the um, uh, uh, the data, data, and physical infrastructure such as you know uh, roads, bridges, and uh, municipal uh, infrastructure. Um, the third, uh, the third task uh, is to create a inclusive business environment to support uh, startups uh, by you know uh, cutting the uh, red tapes um, or providing uh, tax uh, break. Um, and uh, we often uh, see that uh, the, uh, the heavier regulation the government imposed uh, on the uh, private sector and the larger share of the informal economy. Uh, I think that they, uh, from the government perspective, we would like to provide a more, uh, uh, more formal uh, wage employment uh, uh, jobs uh, to the uh, to the people, especially to the young people. 
the last um, initiative, initiative uh, also is very important uh, uh, policy objective is to enhance the social protection uh, program. Uh, so we, we uh, I think uh, there's a survey that uh, six or seven uh, out of the 10 uh, people who work in the gig economy has no access to uh, social insurance. So, so it means that uh, there is a very, very thin social uh, safety net uh, for, the, um, for, the, for the people you know, working in the informal uh, job category. Uh, I think it's up to the, the government uh, uh, to provide this uh, uh, social uh, safety net. Of course, then, which means that the company, the, the government need to expand their, uh, you know, their physical space to find the uh, funding sources to support uh, both the uh, social protection program and the, uh, the human capital development. Um, you know, I think people often talk about the uh, levy, the, the syntax on the tobacco and the um, alcohol. Uh, so which could be uh, one of the, uh, one of the uh, sources. Uh, so I think that, uh, those are probably the more broad uh, policy category that the, the government uh, would consider. Great, um, I think we're running short on time, but Erwin, let me give you a, a minute to maybe uh, broadly answer this question of what uh, different organizations can do. So I think it's very well comprehensively covered by my panel, uh, fellow panelists. Uh, eventually, we, we also believe that the onus is on us as individuals to develop a lifelong learning mindset. Uh, skill, skilling platforms like Udemy have courses on all the skills you need to compete for today and for your future. It's up to us to actually develop that, uh, that willingness to learn, that willingness to adapt, and that willingness to change. Likewise, for companies as well. Uh, if they need to survive today and innovate for future, they themselves need to invest in skilling programs, platforms to continuously skill their workforce. And the same is true for governments as well. They need to focus on skill development of their own workforce, from local administration to state administration to federal government to public sector companies. There's a huge need for our civil society to be skilled. On, uh, specifically on the question of role of the government, I look at government to, uh, to play the role of a regulator rather than a delivery agent, uh, creating the right incentives slash funding structures for private sector to drive skill development and delivery. Uh, also to provide uh, infrastructure to be able to effectively deliver uh, learning. Uh, uh, Jerry talked about uh, internet as an example, uh, affordability of uh, devices, digital devices, and so on and so forth, governments can definitely create incentive structures for, uh, uh, for access and devices to technology. Great, thank you so much, Erwin. And uh, I think we're running out of time now. I wanted to thank you all of you for providing your insights. So today we talked um, uh, a lot about the different aspects of this topic of future-proofing jobs in Asia. Um, we started by talking about how we need to be creating more uh, jobs for the digital era um, and the post-COVID era is actually a great opportunity for Asia, which is still growing economically uh, after the, uh, the COVID pandemic. The pace of change, however, is very fast. Uh, some of the economies in Asia are suffering from some of the basic issues like a digital divide, uh, informal economies, and during COVID, um, some of the demographic groups like women and also young people are 
being disproportionately affected. Um, we talked about the need for lifelong learning. I think that was a big trend. And also upgrading in terms of digital skills and capabilities, but also social and collaborative skills, uh, soft skills, higher cognitive skills. What we know that this is not going to be an easy transition. And it takes no less than really a multi-sector effort. Um, governments investing in human and physical infrastructure, helping uh, individuals support their transition, uh, acquiring skills and, uh, and capabilities through different learning platforms in order to become future-proof. And I think one theme that really spoke to me is just this idea of individual willingness and initiative to continuously learn throughout life, uh, their lives. And that is going to be so important for people to become resilient and uh, catch up with the pace of change and also the increased uncertainty that have come to focus uh, into focus this past year with the pandemic. So with that, I wanted to thank you, uh, John, Javi, Oliver, and Erwin for your great insights um, and for your time. I want to thank our sponsors, McKinsey and Company, Asian Development Bank, Tencent, Kearney, Citrix, NEC, and Tata Consultancy for their support uh, for this Tech for Change Week Asia. And uh, I would like to invite you to join some of our next sections for this Economist Technology for Change Asia. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you. Thank you all. Um, thank you, Janet. Um, so it's all good. Um, we have finished the recording. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you uh, to all of you. Um, hopefully, some of you may be joining our live sessions uh, in case people have questions. And I look forward to keeping in touch uh, as I can see that we're all like minded in wanting to. Uh, in caring about this topic and wanting to make sure that Asia is really prepared for yeah. some of these challenges. That was an amazing panel. Um, honestly. Glad to learn from you uh, in your, from your respective vantage point. So just want to thank you very much. Keep in touch on our email. Bye, everyone. Great. Bye, Bye everyone. Have a good day. Bye.